Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And oh my goodness, we have more shouts to out. Well, we're not going to out them. <laughs> we're going to shout them out. <laughs> Thank <like> you. <laughs> Thank you to Wendy, Matthew, Amy, Delson, Delson, I'm not sure, and Jasmine for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. We hope you enjoy the bonus content and the special gift that's coming your way. It's currently mm. coming my way. If, mm. if that exists to be believed. I believe them. We've, we've outed these people, these wonderful people as connoisseurs of fine <laughs> podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> your um, secret's out. So this week we are getting back to basics, um, mm. like super basics, with something that perhaps many students of archaeology don't think to ask until they're in too deep. Um, I'm speaking on behalf yeah. of one specific student of archaeology. Yeah, um, I, I would like to join you. Yeah. Um, and that question is, yeah, but how do we know anything? <laughs> no, no. Um, and so... Discussing the nature of knowing things is the realm of epistemology. And so epistemology comes from the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. Um, and so it's just the study of what is, what constitutes, and what becomes knowledge. Um, and so that is, so epistemology sort of is, is a branch of philosophy that can be applied to all of the the natural and social sciences. And it deals with um, topics of truth and belief and justification. So justification um, is something that you you come to. Um, you have sources of justification, and that can include uh, perceptual experience, reason, and authoritative testimony, among others. So like to explain that, like, I am looking at a chair. I know this is a chair. How might I know this is a chair? Well, um, I'm, I'm looking at it. It looks like other chairs. It feels like a chair under my butt when I sit on it. Like it's, so I'm, I'm perceiving this as fitting in with what I know as chair. Um, it could be reason be like, okay, well, it's got a flat top. It's got four sturdy legs. It's kind of cushy. Um, that, like following reason, I can like that's a chair. Um, sure, my my good friend Anna told me it's a chair. I believe yeah, Anna. It's a chair. Anna knows about chairs, so Noted chair expert, it's a chair. Me. So that's sort of how justification works, and that's like the most basic <laughs> like way of person like, of this committee of <laughs> of explaining like epistemology. So it's a like it's a whole thing. It's very complex. 
It's, I promise it's, we're not, this isn't going to be a philosophy episode. No, really. no. And so I got, like, I started this script being like, that. let's do just sort of a, like, run through of what epistemology is. And I immediately was, like, drowning. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is horrible. And so what I did was I read. Told me? No. Oh. I, I mean, I did do that. But before I called you, what I did was I read the 1997 children's book, Archaeologists Dig for Clues. Oh. And so I, I was just like, I am in, like, book I'm in recommendation for this. Y- one? Yeah. It's really good. It's, it's, okay, um, good. it's like a, it's a really good explanation of how archaeology works. Um, okay, just great. sort of uh, just like introduction to archaeology. It's better than most other introductions to archaeology I've ever read, and it is for a child. Um, so I read that, and it was actually really helpful and sort of getting me in the right headspace of just sort of like, what does archaeology do? Like, what are we trying to do? And how do we think we've done it? So uh, that's that's kind of what we're going to be dealing with today. But I, and then I called Anna and I was like, I need some examples of of things that people think things that something someone might know about archaeology and either how do we know that or how do we know that that's not the case? Um, so we've spent a fair amount of our episodes or the 164 episodes before Goodness this, gracious. Um, discussing the technologies that we use in archaeological research to sort of get data, um, mm-hmm. as well as the narratives that emerge when we review that data available to us. Um, so that sort of skips over. It skips over the like, how do we take data points and create a narrative out of them? Like, why mm-hmm. are why do they matter? Why are they valuable? Um, and instead of taking that tack this week, let's explore some examples of how we know some things to be true in quotes here, um, mm-hmm. and how we know other things aren't true in, in the past, in archaeology, in anthropology. Um, because after all, you weren't there. How do you know it happened like that? Which is yeah. a, which is a super valid question. And so this yeah. week we are, we are, t- we like have really tried to make this like chatty, like, and like on top, yeah, we're trying on to, task. We're trying to figure some stuff out. Yeah. Because this is something <laughs> that maybe you have, maybe you, dear listener, have thought before. And, and it's very, it's understandable to be afraid that <laughs> you might come off as like, being a truther or like being sort of um, skeptical of science or something. And, and there are a lot of people that I think might um, bristle at any kind of question about like, yeah, but how do we know that uh, as, as, as if you're suggesting that it's not true or we don't know that. Uh, and so this week we want to just talk about how we know stuff. Yeah. And, and I want to take a minute to, before we really jump into that, I want to underscore this point. So since we're thinking about things that used to be considered true and are now being reconsidered and we're, and we're questioning how we know what we know, that means that we'll be talking about theories or explanations and interpretations of the archaeological record that aren't all that recent. Usually in creating an episode, we try not to do that. We try to use 
the evidence that's most current. But this is with the intent of taking you through the process of a scientific discipline self-correcting or revising the paradigm by which we understand the world. And that's maybe the most key thing about science. And I think why many people might, if not aware that this is the case, distrust public science um, and public reporting of scientific or medical knowledge. So I often see people responding to news stories that cover updates from for example, the CDC, about our current understanding of the pandemic with the theme of, oh, they keep changing their minds. Scientists don't know what they're doing. Actually, that means that science is doing exactly what it should do. The goal of science is to understand the world around us, but we can only understand as much as we understand, as much as the yeah. data it tells us. And so when we know more, our perception changes. And that holds true for the archaeological record, too. Because it's a science and science is a process. And I think that there are a lot of prominent thinkers out there (laughs) on Twitter and elsewhere who sort of think of science as like a as a constant as a constant or like as a religion or a cornerstone or something a dogma i was yeah i was thinking i was like do i say dogma uh but it's something that yeah and that's that's not doing anybody anything you're not helping by by saying that because that's not how science ought to work no the whole point is to try to understand more about how the world works yeah what you know whatever uh, facet of the discipline you're, you're doing that in, whether it's yeah. chemistry or biology or archaeology. Um, it's, and so, so it's, as more, it's, it's sort of the introduction of ego is where yeah. we start to have like, you know, like not, I'm not getting philosophical. I'm just saying like when science is done with ego, it can become dogmatic. No, it's, yeah. Because and, it, a theory becomes sort of your pet theory yeah. and then, and then you become attached to it and then feelings get hurt. And, mm. and we may see some of that. Yeah, Uh, we we sure might. So as more evidence is uncovered, as new technology and new types of analyses become available, we know more about lives in the past. And sometimes that means really shifting our understanding about what happened. Because as Amber said, we weren't there. So, you know, our experience of the past extends 30 something years and that's about it. So really holding out and dying on a hill of a conviction that isn't supported by new evidence um, because you, you have invested some of yourself and your, your reputation in that, in that conviction. um, And you feel that overturning it or changing it in any way is somehow a slight or a, a, a reflection upon you. Well, it's a choice that some archaeologists make and some more generally some scientists make, but it's not a useful one. So all that is to say, let's take a look at the Solutrean hypothesis. And so I'm going to present an extremely simplified version of what that is. It's an explanation for how people first got to what is today the continents of North and South America. So first of all, the Solutrean is one of those words like Mousterian or Gravetian that describes a particular type of material culture pretty much the stone tools and the things that accompany them, and by default also describes the people who made it. And that material culture originated in the Upper Paleolithic in what is today France, Spain, and Portugal. So the theory was first proposed in the 1970s, and the the basic gist, everything hinges on linking features of Solutrean stone tools with some of the first stone tools found in the Americas, which are known as Clovis points. 
Now, Clovis spear tips and other stone objects are a distinct type of material culture associated with an early Paleo-American site near Clovis, New Mexico, after which the complex is named. Actually, Clovis isn't even really where the first examples of this material culture were found, but that's that's the name that stuck. So they're, they're you say like the first points. The, wasn't the first to have them excavated. Or was right. it the yeah, there were okay. Um, I mean, but. No, no, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the dating of the material itself. I'm talking about when this stuff was found. Oh, okay. And so the site that where the the name comes from wasn't the first of these sites to to yield these stone tools, but that's where the name came from. <laughs> so Clovis materials were first found in the 1920s and 30s, and from that point were considered the oldest evidence of human habitation in the Americas, because that's the oldest examples that people knew about at that time. Solutrian and Clovis points, they, they do look kind of similar. Um, there are some key things that they have in common, and so given that you have two data points, you have the Solutrian stone tools and you have Clovis stone tools, and they look pretty similar. You can see where this hypothesis might have originated. So you've got thin bifacial points. These are, they are worked on both sides of the stone and they're relatively thin in, in sort of um, the thickness of the stone. Yes, you look like you have a I question. I have a question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, where did it originate? Did it originate what? from the, the this hypothesis? You're saying like if you if did it originate from um, archaeologists who specialized in in Solutrian stone tools or or like cult sites, or did it originate in folks working in North America? Did it originate among someone who was not involved in either? Um, My understanding of it was that when these stone tools were found in the Americas, the stone tools that people knew as a reference point were European ones. And so in comparing the Clovis points to existing typologies of material culture, they went, oh, it looks like this one. So this was in the development of a typology in the first, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, if you found it for the first time, the second or you third time. You have to time, figure out what it is. Uh, you yeah. have to, okay. So this was when the archaeology of North America and like Paleo-American sites was just starting to be understood at all? Like, like yeah, within uh, the investigated scientifically? Yeah. So, okay. I mean, the, the American stone tool types, um, People started finding them in the 20s and 30s, but this idea that the Solutrian people came over and were the first to populate the Americas, that was proposed in the 70s. And so it sort of took time for this to be like, well, here's this distinct American tool typology. Where did these people come from? And so like for that question to arise and then for someone to start looking at the American tool types and saying, well, if we want to figure out where these people originated, we should look at other material complexes around the world that we know of and see what looks the most like it because. But it came from within the archaeological community? Yes. Okay. that, That is my understanding. Yes. Okay. I brought it up now because I don't know anything. (laughs) <laughs> about stone tools even though like i i mean i have seen them in coursework i have seen them and but like they look similar to me because 
Like, it feels like there's a finite number of ways that a stone tool can look. Yeah. Uh And so I wasn't sure if it's just like, was it a me? Was it a someone with even less like knowledge or what was it coming from? I think it was someone who would be authoritative. Yes. Okay. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Go back to Mm -hmm. telling me about stone tools. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you. That was a really good, good uh, clarification. So the Salutrian and Clovis tools have a few things in common. Stone. Nailed it. Pointy. Yep. Old. Mm-hmm. Dirty. Well, I think they cleaned them. When you find them? Pretty dirty. Sure. Sure. I told you. Sure. Don't know nothing. Uh-huh. Um, the biggest thing that people point to as a link between the two complexes is a technique called overshot flaking. Sometimes you see that term in French, but... In general, it's a technique of thinning the blade without taking away much of its width. So you are making the edges thinner, but the flakes that you're taking off don't extend very far into the body of the point itself. So you're not really taking away much of the mass of the of the tool itself, but you are making it sharper and pointier. Um, but there are some key differences, the the biggest of which is that some Clovis spear points have what's called bifacial fluting, um, nothing to do with the the instrument. But it's, it's a groove that's napped onto the bottom of the spear point, the sort of little tang of the spear point on both sides that creates a little divot to help the haft stay in place. So when you when you um, attach it to a spear shaft or an arrow, um, it's to help that stay securely. Okay. The Clovis stone tools and associated materials date to around 13.2 to 12.9 thousand years ago. Now the Salutrian in Europe dates to 21,000 to 17,000 years ago. So right away that should so raise like a tiny red flag. F- nearly... <laughs> Okay, so somewhere 4, 000, around around four thousand years from the uh-huh. the um, latest attestation of Salutrian culture then to the, the earliest attestation mm-hmm. attestation of Clovis. So it took a long time to get here. Mm. FedEx was late. I mean. <laughs> Oh, so the Salutrian hypothesis posits that a population derived from the Salutrian culture of Western Europe, so the people who were making Salutrian stone tools in Europe, may have at some point crossed the North Atlantic Ocean along the edge of pack ice that extended from the Atlantic coast of France to North America during the last glacial maximum before 17,000 years ago. So it was so cold that there was ice that extended between the two continents. Which, there's no problem with that. There was a lot of ice. That that could have been the case. That's so, not the problem. <laughs> that's not the problem. Now, if you only have the puzzle pieces that include Salutrian tools and dates, plus Clovis tools and dates, it's really not hard to see why this was a very popular theory. But now we know more. More pieces have been added to this puzzle. And instead of the picture of hot air balloons you thought you were going to see, now it's it's horses now? I don't mm. know. I don't really know where that puzzle metaphor was going. But anyway, it's been a few decades. And now we have a lot more data and the picture looks different. Was it popular despite that gap? Yep. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. It, it was. And I think I think the timing was known, like the, the dates were known. And I yeah. because 
there are um, several pretty significant documentaries. Like there's an episode of Scientific American, I think, where they discuss the Salutrian hypothesis. And Alan, oh, Alan like, Alda? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, this was, it's from like, I don't know, uh, at least 10 to 15 years ago. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's outdated, but, but yeah, I remember showing it in class at one point and being like, huh, talking about that. Interesting. Um, so there are some problems with the Salutrian hypothesis now that we know more. Um, so the first, the first big one, the first red flag is the one that we've already mentioned is that the dating is mismatched. So the dates of the occupation of the Iberian Peninsula is 5,000 years earlier ish than the first occupation of the Americas as indicated by Clovis. So it seems difficult for people to live on ice sheets for 5,000 years. Um, also, this would mean that the Salutrian people made tools pretty much exactly the same way for between five and seven thousand years. That was really my. That was more my question, which is like just like sta- a static technology. Yeah, and that's something that really doesn't happen. People change the way they do stuff, especially over thousands of years. So there's no evidence for any other group in the Americas doing that. Like now that we have more evidence for sort of Paleo American groups doing things, they change what they do every. Every, you know, I don't know. There's no set period of time where they like change over and they, they form a committee and they're like, what are we doing differently this time? But, um, yeah. I don't know. You weren't there. I wasn't. You're right. I wasn't there. There's also an argument for caching as. Like um, with the GPS? Like no, Pokemon not, not Go? Geo- no. No. Um, no, more like Stone Tool Go, which actually stone tools stay in the same place for a long time because uh, in this case, it's you've got a bunch of stone tools that you maybe you need to leave a place quickly or you are kind of traveling seasonally between places and you want to make sure that you've got tools okay. that you need there when you come back. So, um, if, so you, if there's this specific, if you were, I don't know, if you were hunting bear, the yeah. bears and um, <laughs> just one and you hunted them like during the salmon run, would you mm-hmm. perhaps cache your tools that you use for bear near hunting river near spot. Yeah. that spot? Because you'll come yeah. back there next year at the, the same you time don't to hunt to the same You to carry all thing. your fishing tools and your bear tools. Your bear tools. And so you're like, I only hunt bear this time of year. So my deer tools, perhaps it's... You deer have tools like, are back at the other camp. Or you like keep them on your person or something. Yeah. Is, do I understand caching? You do. Under, yes. Okay. It's It's... Make it either, I mean, it's typically a hole in the ground, but some, it might be sort of tucked into, I don't know, a small cave. I'm just trying to imagine different places where you might cache something. But yeah, it's it's a set of objects that you put away for later and you hide okay. them so that they don't disappear. Um, except originally people thought that this was a behavior that you only see with the Salutrine and the Clovis, which would make sense if they were the same people. Yeah. Except... That there are now known pre-Salutrian caches in Europe and pre-Clovis caches in the Arctic of North America and what was once Beringia, the bridge between Eastern Asia and the Arctic of North America. And it's not because the Salutrian would have this 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 behavior would have been diffused to the Salutrians. By someone else. It's, it really it's like doesn't, too. No, it's just it's too prevalent. Did that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, just a thing, a thing that, that people did. Yep. When you invest time and energy and resources into making something, you and you don't and your you, stuff is made out of stone. So you it's try to figure out ways to um, to save yourself having to do it again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. 
Yeah, so there are sites like Old Crow Flats in Alaska and Ushki Lake in Siberia where there are caches that are neither Salutrian nor Clovis. So, cool. Um, Clovis and Salutrian people seem to have used totally different faunal resources, which on the surface might not be so surprising because people who are moving through different landscapes tend to use what resources are available, but there's really different patterning. So the Clovis people seem to have done almost no marine hunting. They typically, they focused on terrestrial animals Um, and Salutrians did land-based hunting. So terrestrial animals, but also pretty consistently supplemented them by hunting along rivers or coastlines. Um, So they did use a lot of littoral or marine resources. Um, Littoral, not literal. Literal referring to Riverside. The, sorry. Well, yes. Well, Riverside. Lake, uh, it's a coast. It's a be- beachy. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. a Latora is a beach or a coastline. It is. Thank you. Uh, and unfortunately, one of the possibly the biggest downside of the Salutrian hypothesis <laughs> kicking around, despite evidence to the contrary, is that white nationalists see it as a means of denying Native Americans an ancestral claim on their land. Because the idea behind the Salutrian hypothesis, even though nobody was European yet, is part of a long tradition of trying to insert Europeans into American history and prehistory. See, any time we've ever talked about the runestones and other hoaxes like that. So that's a bummer. So There are now some holes in the Salutrian theory, and I think we can mostly discount it as the explanation for how people got to North and South America, or even an explanation, because I don't think that's what happened. So where does does that leave us? Where did the first humans come from before they got to the Americas, and how did they get there? Let's look at the evidence. Let's. First, we're going to a uh, bluegrass song. (laughs) I left my to- my tools down at Buttermilk Creek. Creek. Yeah. I've been bang, I've bang, been ding a ding a ding. Yeah, Buttermilk Creek is just such a. It's lovely, beautiful. It's like cellar door to me. It's beautiful. <laughs> okay, Donnie Darko. Ah, <laughs> uh, so I've been banging on about stone tools, so I might as well start there. Stone tools from Buttermilk Creek, a site mm. in Texas are evidence for nearly continuous occupation more than 15,000 years ago, way before Clovis. So if we're now thinking that Clovis are the earliest people in the Americas, uh, they aren't, they weren't, they aren't, they weren't. No. Um, and that is backed up by radiocarbon dating specifically among, among other things. But, um, two examples here, there were coprolites, fossilized poo, Found in the Oregon site of Paisley Cave, which is in general is a hugely prolific site. There's tons of stuff coming out of there. It's still being excavated. And so in 2008, human coprolites were found at the site of Paisley Caves and were radiocarbon dated to 14,300 years ago. Again, pre-Clovis. But so, but in Texas, in what is today Texas, um, dated around the same time, if not older mm-hmm. than what's at Paisley Cave. So Paisley mm-hmm. Cave, closer to yes. Beringia. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but Texas, younger. not. Yeah. Really? So, okay. Which means that people were in the south, southern part of North America, possibly before they came back inland and north. Yeah. 
they were at least what that they were at least at buttermilk creek before Before they were were at at they were pooping in paisley cave (laughs) like that pooping in a cave like people do like yeah they these people may not have been the first in either place but these two instances of occupation they present a really interesting time yeah Mm -hmm. exactly um and so the sample also provided DNA that matches genetic patterns common to present-day indigenous peoples in the Americas and some inhabitants in Eastern Asia, where the Beringia land bridge starts or ends, depending on which direction you're going, I guess. <laughs> Ancestral populations likely used the Beringia land bridge to travel east to new territories, but more than a thousand years before the appearance of Clovis technology. So these weren't people coming from Western Europe. They were coming from Eastern Asia, and they probably weren't the same as the Salutrian people. Moreover, another example, a 2018 analysis of DNA from a child burial from Alaska dating to around 11,500 years ago um, shows that this, this child was part of a previously unknown lineage that split from modern Native Americans about 20,000 years ago. So that suggests, because this is sort of up near where that land bridge was, suggests that her group lived in isolation in Beringia, isolated enough so that they weren't mixing with other populations, so their genetic line was distinct. So they stayed in either Beringia, Siberia, or sort of very northern North America for a long time, crossing the land bridge to North America earlier than thought and over a much longer time span than previously assumed. So people were hanging out kind of in the Beringia passage area living there. Yeah. It seems like that's a really, this is a really good point because I think when, and I will include myself and sort of the like uninformed here Mm. um, about this, like, because I think it was taught to me as like as a corridor, like as yeah. a, like, you know, you don't you take a tunnel to get from one part. Like you take a tunnel to get from Oakland to Alameda. You don't live, you don't live in the you tunnel. don't hang out in the tunnel. Yeah. Um, but but it's sort of like it's it's a it's a means to an end. The end being populating North America, but people right, didn't. But it turns out people didn't know it was wasn't there. Necessarily one way. Yeah, yeah. And like they didn't. They didn't know it was there. They probably didn't care if it was there or not. They they probably like they were just moving. We, we, we don't. Yeah. We have no idea what their conception of the world was. We have no idea if their cosmology needed to extend to like all of existence. Like the the and it's something that you could live a lifetime. In a place that most people today don't consider as existing, that it was just sort of like, especially since right now it's underwater. Well, but yeah, but, yeah. but thinking like, oh, we're we're moving because we're following the the mammoths at least as if the mammoths knew where they were going, and so it's just like I think that's a really good point to make around sort of considering prehistoric lives and prehistoric yeah. worlds. And but I they find didn't this- necessarily know what they didn't have necessarily have an end goal in mind. It's not like the the settlers traveling west in in the United States because they knew where they were going. This was well, just and, and when even like sort of well and even sort of Columbus yeah knew where he was going he was, he was wrong but but yeah, he knew well. that there was something over there that he was going to get to and. 
And so that, that sort of, like, yeah, we, we don't, don't know to what extent they understood what was yeah, in that direction. So I don't, I don't think it's, yeah. it's possible for us to like conceive of like what their world was in that mm-hmm. way. But I find it so beautiful that I don't just sort of like, almost like just poignant going. Uh, of, of being like a small, a group of people that um, like this, this, this child's world and like the world's population to her was small and just sort of, it's, it's just sort of, I don't know. It kind of speaks to like a cosmic loneliness. And I find that very beautiful. It's something that I can't comprehend as, as a person who lives in a heavily connected, like, globalized world of 7 billion people. Just thinking right, especially about- lately. I don't think we were meant yeah. to know about so many people, humans. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to wrap this up with a quote from a Guardian article by archaeologist Jennifer Raff, who is great. Follow her on Twitter. She says, quote, if the Solutrean hypothesis were true, we would expect to see ancestry from non-Siberian descended populations present in the genomes of ancient Native Americans. We don't. All contemporary and ancient Native Americans, including the only known ancient individual buried in association with Clovis tools, show descent from an ancestral population with Siberian roots. There is a very clear pattern of evolutionary history recorded in ancient genomes from Siberia, Beringia, and North America, and no evidence for transatlantic gene flow. End quote. Mm. So as we now understand it, what's the story? Well, actually... And this is something that we say all the time. <laughs> there are several options um, because there isn't just one way to explain how the past happened. And it's probably true that people were moving around in a few different ways. So there's a couple of options. One is that there they used people used the Beringia land bridge, but not from Western Europe, from Siberia and points south. Um, some people stayed in Beringia for a long time. There was probably movement back and forth. This wasn't like a unidirectional one-way street. Um, the other option is called the Kelp Highway Hypothesis. And it is it is supported by archaeological sites um, in South America and in the Channel Islands off the coast of California. And this is the idea that people traveled from um, Eastern Asia, but instead of crossing the land bridge, they, they went by boat, um, which is great because that means that's very cool. They means they had, you know, Mm-hmm. seagoing technology. And they stayed close to the edge of the ice that went down um, across the Beringia land bridge and then down the west coast of North and South America, because not only could they sort of disembark and hunt on the pack ice, they could, they were following this extremely rich um, kelp forest that extends pretty much from the what is today the the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. way down to I think as far down as like past California, and so um, this is a really really rich resource for for marine um, hunting for for fishing and hunting things like seals because the fish love to live in the kelp forest. The seals eat the fish. There are also birds to hunt. So it's a really really um, diverse environment full of food, including kelp, because I think I think the kelp is edible. I don't know. I don't know if they were eating it. But um, yeah, so the kelp highway hypothesis is also supported by archaeological evidence. So it's probably the case that people came both ways. Yeah. There's people people moving around. And and in possibly in ways that we 
Yeah, we don't know yet. Have not been able to access yet. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, um, that was a lot. So let's take a quick ad break. And then it's Amber's turn. We're on. We just finished case study one. (laughs) Mm, Minute 37. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. We're still having fun. Um, and we never stopped. (laughs) We didn't stop having fun. Um, now we are going to talk about hunting and or gathering and specifically whose domain either of those was so there persists <laughs> there persists in popular culture um that in the murky undefined past where we all wore animal pelts um men were the brave persistent hunters while women performed the lower stakes lower impact work of gathering which wouldn't interfere with the duties of childcare gestation and and breastfeeding, etc. Uh, yeah, uh, specifically those things have been mentioned, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. in in, um, in scholarship and popular content. Although um, you know, if there's one thing about babies, pretty portable. They're pretty portable, as opposed to to later in the developmental stages, is what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so it's one thing that this idea is floating around out there in the backs of minds that don't think too much about the deep past. Uh, you know, that's one thing, but yeah, it's sure. another thing entirely that the men hunt women gather rule has been weaponized by some people. And in fact, it's such a pervasive trope in some circles that we have, we hunted the mammoth, which is a blog that chronicles anti-feminism and misogyny online, specifically like online, like, People who are capital O online. online. Yeah. (laughs) So in the FAQ, the author, David Futrell, explains the title. And I will read this quote. Can I ask a question before to clarify before you launch into the quote? This is so this is a a compilation of this blog. Is this blog some misogynist writing stuff no, or is it no, a no, compilation no, no, no. of he, okay he is a he's so, collecting uh, so you're not stuff. okay sorry everyone including anna so we hunted the mammoth is a is a work of sort of like investigative cultural criticism okay. and david futrell writes about 
um, gender, gender and online spaces, uh, technology, anti-feminism and, and that and sort of okay. that sort of stuff in the modern age. And so he got the I'm so sorry. He got the the title. We hunted the mammoth from some guy's diatribe online. OK, and, and that's and that, what that you're about to it quote. Beca- okay. Yeah. And it became um to him, it was such a like perfect distillation of, mm-hmm. of this thought of like, um, the besieged masculinity or something like that, that sort of sense right. of we were so great. And now look at us, like, look what happened to us. Okay. And it, 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 um, he, he looks at a lot of stuff around sort of like incel, um, culture, at, culture. Okay. at like MGTOW, so men going their own way. Um, it's called MGTOW. Um, so he, okay. like Futrell looks at all of this stuff. And so he explains the title in the FAQ saying, here's the quote in all of its weird glory. Now quoting from a man on the internet. <laughs> we built a nice safe world for you all we built a nice safe world for you all the the coal mines of death <laughs> railroad roads railroads bridges and tall office buildings it's one million dollars spent per death of a man on a large dangerous project on average now you can just nine to five it and call it a day in air conditioned and heated safety forget about the wars we died in and the sacrifices we made just ignore history or is it now herstory you are accruing the benefits without ever having to pay the price. You still don't have to sign up for the draft and who will protect you. The sex and the city girls will fight off the North Koreans with their mando- their Manolo Blahniks. Men gave you this modern world and you take it for granted. We hunted the mammoth to feed you. We died in burning buildings. We were gassed in the trenches, but that was just for fun, right? How quick and conveniently you forget who made this possible. We gave you Leonardo da Vinci, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, not to mention Count others Jonas socks saved half the world from death and you just pee on it all um end quote from man on he the sounds internet. great yeah so where does this idea originate from if not in like i don't know the genetic cellular memory of our ancestors greatness which is something that alex jones talks about um and presumably people who subscribe to the rhetoric of Alex Jones also talk about that we sort of remember this in our bodies or something. Um, it's in our DNA. So probably 1966. That sounds about right. Um, so that year, a multi-day symposium was held at the University of Chicago and was organized by Richard Lee and Irvin DeVore. Uh, well, I mean, it was probably organized by a bunch of like underpaid women who worked in like the admin roles and mm-hmm. and perhaps students. But Lee and DeVore uh, were sort of the 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 uh, intellectual figureheads of this. And it was entitled Man the Hunter. Um okay. let's let me let me Man the Hunter. Yeah, yeah. So Lee mm. and DeVore were research collaborators um who studied the Kung Kung culture um who live in what is today namibia angola and botswana so lee wrote the kong kong san uh, men women and work in a foraging society which i had to read for anthropology 101 hmm. do you hmm. did you take anthropology 101 i did sure didn't i did i took it and i read that 
Um, I think I've read excerpts since, but yeah. So it's a, it's like, um, it's a, a seminal work of cultural anthropology, of, 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 <laughs> of cultural uh, anthropology and cultural ecology. So man, the hunter, um, the, the conference, the symposium. Yeah. What, uh, man, most, the hunter, the symposium. <laughs> man, the hunter, the, yeah. Um, so, most of the people in attendance were North American cultural anthropologists who were also men, but also mm-hmm. some um, like Lewis Benford was there. There were some archaeologists mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of it focused on contemporary hunter gatherer groups, including the Kung culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so the main point of the whole thing was that we were going to get all of these guys together who study contemporary um, hunter gatherer groups and look and, and by looking at them and understanding them, um, they could understand sort of the original source of the livelihood state of, of, of existence for or yeah. the earliest people. Yeah. That we are going to have this sort of lens into like primordial society and sort of like and very much like essence of man which is is a like <laughs> the worst now that I'm, now essence of man you know, now i'm now that i'm saying that it smacks of like very like enlightenment ideas of sort of like sure natural yeah. man and this is sort of like natural it derives man. from that it, yeah like natural man exactly but in a way, like but, cultural yeah. ecology way yeah it's sort of like that's where you got it, but you may not know you got it there. Like, right, exactly. Thing. And um, and we've we um this is a whole different bucket of fish to talk about the issues with um trying to get at lives in the past by looking at contemporary groups. So if you're interested in that, I think it's episode ninety four. Is our it, we did a, a whole episode about hunter gatherers and how yeah. we know what we know about them. So. Yeah. And so this man, the hunter, the idea was like, if y'all understand how hunters live, then you'll be better, better prepared to think about the past. And sure, because they hunted because they hunted and they probably Mm. like man hunted Mm -hmm. and and lady gathered. Um, Mm -hmm. And so. Um, in 1968, they published the volume. They published all the papers that were presented at Man the Hunter okay. the Symposium. And it was called Man the Hunter, the first intensive survey of a single crucial stage of human development. Man's once universal hunting way of life. Um, sure. So that was published in 1968, which was uh, possibly the worst possible time. Like, like for that, that viewpoint, yeah. For that viewpoint to come out because that yeah, same exactly. year, second wave <laughs> feminism the, popped it, off. There, there's not a causal relationship there, is there? Did no, I okay. Mm, maybe, well, mm, okay. No, I think this is a correlation. I think that okay. second wave feminism popped off because all of these people were living in a world. <laughs> Where these where that guys was the were talking about thing. this. Yeah. Okay. Great. And like just like, being not in the exactly same. causal, but zeitgeist. No, no sure. definitely correlated. Like being okay. in North America mm-hmm. in the 60s. Okay. Um, so for those of you who don't who don't know or don't remember, second wave feminism. Um, so first wave feminism was <laughs> sort of like women existed but basically yeah it was a lot of it was women existed but it was mostly like 
um, affluent white women existed. Um, And so it was, and that looked at um, things like um, access to voting and access to property rights, which are two things that um, continue to be things that are not equitably distributed across all people. Mm. Um, so, but that was where it started. That's how feminism started. In second wave feminism, that's when they, when um, feminists began to critique patriarchy and sort of the structure, the patriarchal structure and uh, dominant mores in society. And so that's where <laughs> things like um, sexuality, the family, women being in the workplace, um, reproductive rights, um, and sort of the de facto inequalities of life, like women could not own credit cards, like that sort of Until stuff. Until like 1970. It was in the 70s. Like yeah. yeah. So that's, so that's not a great time to, um, to, to maybe man the actually, hunter it up. If you are the theory, if we're going to anthropomorphize man the hunter the book, um, not a great time to exist, but a great time for that idea to enter, to to be introduced to a wider audience when there is an emergent opposition, op- opposing narrative. Yeah, um, it's it's more balanced. It ugh, at least there's something out there. Yeah, um, there's there's a counterpoint and, is what I yeah, meant. Yeah, there, there is a counterpoint that is that is gaining momentum. And so maybe Man the Hunter, the maybe Man the Hunter, the theory would have like really like blossomed had it come out five years before, without 10 yeah, years without before, any with without without folks developing these sort of um, arguments and frameworks Critiques, to, yeah. to push back against it. Mm-hmm. So two people, two um, anthropologists who pushed back against it were Jane Collier and Michelle Rosalo, um, who both pointed out that there are gendered assumptions in Man the Hunter that, uh, and those assumptions being that the masculine coded activities like hunting were what's central to human development. Whereas the gendered feminine uh, work was devalued and not considered evolutionarily important. So it's sort of like hunting is what's crucial, not other aspects of life. And so like you can reproduction and, and raising offspring. Well, yeah. And, and sort of like other agricultural strategies, mm-hmm. other ways, like uh, the different aspects of domestic life. Sure. Um, and so and that, that's sort of like, if you're saying that men do the hunting, what the women do is important. But it, but as we, as they knew, as many people knew who were doing ethnographic research knew then, and as we see like with contemporary groups, that's not the case. That actually gender roles are very commonly less rigid. And it's yeah. just sort of like... People whoever, do they need to whoever do. sees it hunts it or the sort of like and then there are um, there are societies there are hunter gatherers societies in which um, generally women do the the hunting and also we have to like the categories the binary categories of men and women are not universal so it's mm. sort of like that's and so it's sort of like well this it's complicated is, it is complicated and and it was very easy to get a bunch of guys together in 1966 and talk about something 
and come up with an idea. It's much harder to sort of be like, well, actually, it's more nuanced than that. Because like, it's more nuanced than that isn't easy to get. It's your not head very around. satisfactory. And, and, you know, our little human brains are wired to like to categorize things yeah. in sensible little boxes. And that is not how humans work. Yeah. And so then, um, more recently, well, about 40 years ago in November 2020, uh, there was yes. yep. an article was published in Science Advances um, with the title Female Hunters of the Early Americas, in which a case study was presented from a grave excavated in 2018 at Willamaya Pacha. 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 Help me out here, Anna. I got nothing. It's a J next to an X, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, and it is a high-altitude site in Peru. You, I'm um, so sorry. You said high-altitude. <laughs> a high-altitude site in Peru. What's today, Peru? Um, so I'm going to read a, an excerpt of the abstract. This is a 9,000-year-old human burial associated with a hunting toolkit of stone projectile points and animal processing tools. Osteological, proteomic, and isotopic analyses indicate that this early hunter was a young adult female who subsisted on terrestrial plants and animals. Analysis of late Pleistocene and early Holocene burial practices throughout the Americas situate this burial as the earliest and most secure hunter burial in a sample that includes 10 other females in statistical parity with early male hunters. These findings. So there, there were a similar number. Yeah. Statistical parity. Um, no, that the um, everything that was with them in the burial, like the, the characteristics oh. of the burial itself. Okay. Uh, were, were the same. So that they, so okay. you could say statistical parity here refers to um, the burial was the same apart but from the, the biological sex yeah, okay. of the skeleton in Thank it. you. Um, so the findings are consistent with non-gendered labor practices in which early hunter-gatherer females were big game hunters. Um, so, yeah, so this it, so this team looked at 429 published graves from this this period um, of those. They found 27 skeletons that could be sexed. Um, yeah. And of those, 41 percent were determined to be likely biologically female, huh. um, which is which which is it's a big deal. Not what the dominant narrative was. And so no. this was a huge story that was tarnished somewhat by the work <laughs> of, um, I'll call him out here because he cited for it, um, Matthew Verdolivo at UC Davis's IET Academic Technology Services, who did an illustration and dressed our prehistoric huntress in a cute pink tunic. Um, yeah, and that I, went out with I mean, he the got a release. ton of flack for that. Yeah, and I, and I sort of wonder... You know, did he agonize over that decision? It may was it not just have sort of been unconscious? his choice. Yeah, it may, I don't and know. I am I applaud someone for um, calling for it entertaining the possibility that um, uh, that like prehistoric world included like being cute and like looking nice and like having like aesthetics sure. as part of what they wore that we weren't just wearing like animal pelts thrown over our shoulders kind of thing i love that i love 
I love that. And the the I idea of wish, pink being a girl color is much more complicated. It was a boy I, color first. But I first do and wish whatever. that when when packaging this for a 2020 audience, yeah, of uh, being like green sisters doing green. it for themselves, like Could've been yellow. It would just oof. Yep. Oof. Yep. Um. So, but <laughs> not everyone was on board with this and mm. a Smithsonian article that'll be in the show notes uh, quotes, Robert Kelly, who's an archeologist at the university of Wyoming um, who doesn't, who didn't doubt that the skeleton was female, but he was less convinced by uh, the interpretation of that kit buried with her, that toolkit. Why? Why um, Robert? Well, he said that like discovery of hunting tools at a gravesite doesn't necessarily mean that who was buried there was a hunter. And he cites okay. uh, two burials found at Upward Sun River in Alaska that they were um, there were infant burials. That's and one of the um, the ones that I talked about that confirms the dating I, of, of. I was in, wondering. Yeah, it's the uh, yeah, Upward okay. Sun River infant. Yep. We we define we we divided and conquered this episode, listener. We did, um, and so. There were so, – so the argument is that male hunters may have buried loved ones with their own hunting tools as an expression of grief. Sure. Which, like, maybe she was beloved and so the hunters gave – like, buried that with her. Um, but as other people <laughs> – as other folks have, have pointed out, including Kathleen Sterling in that article um, – if it had been a biologically male skeleton buried with his toolkit, would anyone be saying, well, we don't we don't know that he was a hunter. Somebody may have buried their tools in grief. Um, and so yeah, we like, don't. Yes, we don't say that the, when it's the fact that it's questioned is because of the sex of the skeleton. Um, and so. Should we be questioning? I, I end this section with should we be questioning every burial? Um, or should we question a little bit less the ones that are uh, in opposition our... to in, in opposition to the dominant narrative? Yeah, to our to our notions, whatever those are. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about here um, is is something that so. Hmm. The first thing is the misconception, and I'm only going to touch on that briefly for a few reasons. So I'm going to discuss the Atacama skeleton and Starchild skull, respectively. I'm going to introduce them briefly and give the overall history of each, but ultimately, these are two cases of children who were sick and died very young. There's tons of ancient aliens speculation surrounding these two cases. This is sort of why we're tackling this idea, but I don't want to fuel any of that or give it any sort of credence. So again, brief histories, just as case studies of something people might think they know, but don't. And then I will move to bioarchaeological evidence for some things about ancient pathologies that we do know about and that are relevant. So the Atacama skeleton was found in an abandoned mining town in the Atacama region of Chile in 2003. And the skeleton was remarkable in many ways. While only six inches tall, the bones had some features of a child aged six to eight. So this was a tiny little skeleton, but the growth plates of the bones were fused in a way that only happens much later in, in child development. The skeleton also had 10 pairs of ribs instead of the usual 12. And the head was a, a very um, elongated cone shape. Wait, are do we think that this was a child 
who lived for six to eight years or no. that there were just. I'll get to the, that. Okay. Yeah. No, the, okay. the fusion was part of a disorder that this individual okay. had. Yeah. Uh huh. So there was a full genome analysis done on this individual and um, results were published in their journal, Genome Research, hmm. fittingly. And so uh, I'm quoting from that paper, quote, a female of human origin, likely of Chilean descent, and its genome harbors mutations in genes previously linked with diseases of small stature, rib anomalies, cranial malformations, premature joint fusion, and osteochondrodysplasia, which is also known as skeletal dysplasia. Together, these findings provide a molecular characterization of Atta, that they named the, the infant Atta, uh, of Atta's peculiar phenotype, which likely results from multiple known and novel putative gene mutations affecting bone development and ossification. So this isn't an ancient burial. I want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. This child was likely born around 40 years before the remains were found. So it's a, it's a modern... So about 50 um, years ago? Yeah. 55 yeah, years exactly. ago. Mm-hmm. And so this was likely a child that was stillborn or died soon after birth. But the way that it looks, and, and it was this sort of new sensation when it was first discovered, the way that it looks is almost sort of cartoonishly like depictions of extraterrestrials in you know yeah. sort of an X-Files-y kind of way. Yeah, it and looks fake like it looks like something it does it looks like like the fiji mermaid yeah yeah and kind of yeah and so um there was this furor kind of around the the find um and ancient aliens folks really grabbed onto it but ultimately this this was a child who was who died shortly after being born um i know so sad it's very sad moving on to the star child skull Mm -hmm. um this one was reportedly found in 1930 in a mining tunnel south of what is today Chihuahua, Mexico. And it's part of a human skull of a child who likely died as a result of congenital hydrocephalus, which is sometimes referred to as water on the brain. Um, It's swelling as a result of fluid in and around the brain. Mm -hmm. And the skull tends to swell as it grows, meaning that there is malformation of the skull. Okay. And so when this was found... Does this happen after birth yeah like, it's, it's this a condition like that kind of exists development yeah yeah so it's a so condition that child, exists when the baby is born so this child is not this child did did not die the way that the 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 previous the child, child that we talked about so this this no, child this, had survived birth it and, reached and, infancy yeah okay. it, didn't live very long. Okay. Um, yeah. And so there's a guy, American <laughs> author and paranormal researcher, whose name was Lloyd Pye, claimed the skull was the hybrid offspring of an extraterrestrial and a human female. Because, of course, the first thing that you say when you see human remains that don't look quite what we expect them to look like uh, is yeah. automatically some sort of extraterrestrial origin. Um, I I was last night. I was listening to a new episode of a podcast that I listened to, um, and they were talking about the the subject of hybridization, and mm-hmm. and the, this whole specifically alieny alieny hybridization. Well, no, no, like it, the hybridization being like reproductive 
like women's reproductive, like reproductive capacity being sort of co-opted by aliens. And like, I got really angry because I was, what I was hearing, what I was hearing were instances of people that have gone through considerable trauma around uh, fertility issues and like uh, pregnancy loss. And I, and somebody kept talking about someone like a famous alien researcher that they had talked to. And I wonder if it was this guy. And it might be. He's, not, it, he's not an old timey aliens guy. This is like, no, this I think was, he's contemporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It might, so, it might be, I have no idea. And so I it's think not that, like there's just one guy. I, no, but I like the other things that were going on. I think that, but, hmm. and so this is something that is, um, this is it discounts a lot this of is, human. This is peaked for me right now, yes. and and what I was hearing was people trying to process trauma, and it mm-hmm. being taken advantage of by someone who traffics in pseudoscience. Yeah, and so consider that um, the next time you see someone going aliens on Twitter. Um, so the the short version of this story is that no, it's not an alien. It, the skeletal features are consistent with the hydrocephalic condition that is known to exist. We have contemporary examples. Um, Unfortunately, this was a child that somebody lost. So let's not disrespect that loss by claiming it's aliens. But what is something cool that we do know as a result of skeletal pathologies from the archaeological record? How about, and this isn't something to be particularly cheerful I love about. your I love your excited tone as you go into this. <laughs> yep, I'm trying to rein that in uh, because these are two of the earliest known cases of leukemia. Mm. Mm. So case one is from uh, research published in 2019 in the International Journal of Osteoarchaeology. And this is a skeleton of a 16 to 20 year old male from ancient Egypt. Um, and his, his remains are dated to 2160 to 2000 BCE. So keep that date loosely in mind. Um, Case number two is a 2015 research paper on multiple individuals buried at a Neolithic site from southern Germany, specifically the skeleton of one woman who was between 30 and 40 years of age at time of death, who showed distinct markers of leukemia. And so this is from um, even older, so Neolithic. Mm. It was around um, 7,000 years ago, I think. Mm, Uh, And so putting in my head. Yep. Uh, it's okay. Just, just kind of hold 4,000 ish, 7,000 ish. Yep. Exactly. Um, so a quote from the researchers for the, the Germany burials quote, we examined several bones of the skeleton with our high resolution computed tomography system, CT scans. And we found an unusual, (laughs) and we found an unusual loosening of the interior bone tissue or the cancellous bone or the spongy bone in the upper right humerus arm bone, and the sternum, end quote. These are both indicators of blood cancer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, none of this is is particularly happy. But what we know is that these are some of the very earliest examples of, of cancer, specifically leukemia, in the archaeological record. So now that we know this detail about the lives of these people, why do we care if they died from cancer thousands of years ago? Why am I trying to bum you out like this? It's evidence to help us understand the evolutionary patterns of cancer throughout human history and contributing to research that might produce better treatments or even a cure someday. And so it seems to me that privileging things like this over, as Amber said, uh, 
kind of disregarding the the very real human grief and trauma that might come along with that you might not realize comes along with these claims of of ancient aliens um seems like a much better use of our discipline and so mm. i'll just leave it there we'll take one more break and then amber's going to bring it on home This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. We're back and we are wrapping it on up. Hope y'all are having as much fun as I am, even though that last one wasn't fun, but interesting. Um, now we are hacking our way through the steaming jungle, pith helmets firmly, firmly in place where they were until I started sliding around and my sweaty, from sweaty the forehead. sweat on our brows. Um, slowly dying from half a dozen ailments and or parasites and or malnutrition, seeking the lost city of whoever, lost cities. Lost civilizations. Are they lost? Who lost them? Where'd they go? Don't the worry, idea. there's more. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> the idea of lost civilizations is a very romanticized one um, and a hackneyed trope, as evidenced by that little opening vignette that I just gave you. Um, because it's it's a it's a shiny one. Like it's it, it, it like scratches yeah, at something. Yeah, it really does. And people, especially the media, grab onto it without really considering what they're saying. A very quick Google search for what is a lost civilization. <laughs> this um, is how I research. Up, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I read a children's book, so this is <laughs> we're getting there. Um, turned up links from the past five years or so from sources like National Geographic, the History Channel, Scientific American, and similar outlets. So yeah, we and they were all like. What happened to these five lost civilizations or like the lost civilization discovered from space? Yeah, just like so we we hear so people say and write the phrase and perhaps we hear it without assessing it critically. Um, So let's take the idea and really think about it for a minute. Um, Also, Graham Hancock, who just sucks, um, immediately popped up. (laughs) Very pseudo, which is pseudo archaeo guy. Yeah. It's like too bad. It's just like, really too bad. It's a shame. Mm. Um, And so, so we're not citing any of those here. You will not find any of those links no, in these not show, in the show notes. notes. I um, just wanted to put out there that I'm disappointed. <laughs> Anna's not mad. Anna's disappointed. I am mad. No, I'm both Anna's mad and disappointed. I'm also mad, mad and disappointed. Yeah. Um, but before we can define a lost civilization, let's talk about found civilizations. Let's classify <laughs> civilization. 
which is which one of my really least hard. favorite terms in ever everything. Really. I think civilization <laughs> is um, a little bit below a lot of slurs for me in oh, terms is, of yeah, words we'll I get, hate the most. <laughs> we'll get there. So the definition is permanently in flux, but for no the purposes, yeah, but for the purposes of this conversation, um, if a society checks certain boxes, it gets to say it's a civilization, but those boxes aren't like rigid or boxes. Yeah. It's not like a diagnostic criteria. No, um, it's not but, a checklist really, but we have to sort of hit some of the notes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, perhaps you find in your civilization starter kit, um, stratified social groups. So you've got like producers of food, specialists, leaders of some sort, uh, which also implies you've got enough people in one place for those divisions to make sense, where you get both intensification and extensification. So extensification is being able to specialize in something because you've got other parts of your life covered. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I bake the bread and Anna makes the pots. So mm, that uh, tracks. Anna doesn't have to worry about. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anna doesn't have to worry about eating Food. because I've got that covered. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to bake my bread in because Anna's got that covered. So we have extensified. It's, I've made you a paleo le crusade. Um, so you've got systems of communication, especially symbolic ones like writing or a picture system, but writing, we love writing, um, urbanization, urban development. Can a nomadic society be a civilization? Yes. People who like to call things civilizations wouldn't, but, (laughs) but the, but, but the empire that Genghis Khan put together it's definitely a civilization. Try calling it not metrics. one. Try calling it but, not one. But it's not one that has as much urban development because only some portions of the population put down roots in cities. They were uh, otherwise they had like tents and were more um, nomadic or semi-nomadic, um, as we learned about in old news this month. Um, mm-hmm. But there there are other hallmarks like a uh, like monumental art. Um, yeah. You've got a. Uh, a religion you've in like a particularly like a state religion a state religion that is stratified that has a religious class mm-hmm. um you've got different um technologies and that all comes with like extensification yeah but it's, yeah. um it's the so expansion in, pack i'll get into that i'll get into that in just a minute um if a society doesn't check all those boxes it doesn't mean it can't be a civilization I don't like the term at all. I think it's a useless term. I think that like, I think it's a dog whistle, uh, really. Like when people use it in, in like earnest and like when they because use it, it in Because it comes earnest. with connotations of advanced. And, and like, of, of linear kind of, development. Yeah. And that, and as sort of like superiority, um, yeah. in, in terms of like the evolution of society. Um, but like the one, the thing that we can't say about a civilization is that, that, and we mustn't is that anyone is more or less advanced than another because that's a loaded really term compare them yeah it, it comes it comes with those those implications yeah um let's just leave and, that out and so the the thing is that groups of people do what works for them what their uh what their environment needs oh, that makes me sound like very like 
a Jared Diamond. Uh, but I'm not. No, saying no, that. no. But uh, people, <laughs> like people, fit their behavior to their environment yeah. to some extent, no matter. Yeah. yeah. And so, if if some if you were doing something like when we talked about the old copper copper complex, one could say that copper is more advanced than stone. But if copper and, yeah. isn't doing it for you and the stone worked better and was a better use of your time and your energy and your resources and yielded then you're better gonna results. you're going to go back to using stone tools. You could argue that it is more Nobody civilized to do the thing that works better. Yeah. So, but this isn't how this isn't how everyone has always defined civilization in terms of that that kind of like you've got these check boxes. Um, Marcel Mauss, who was a I know. He is a French anthropologist who um, he came up with the idea of the gift. And so like the the, the Netflix show. <laughs> no, <laughs> the, the gift being like you um, sort of as, as like gift giving and gift exchange yeah, no, as I, like as a way to like establish and maintain social relationships. I didn't um, know that. I just I wasn't to talking to you. <laughs> so um According to Mao, civilization is something that happens when um, discrete societies uh, share morally and materially across boundaries with other societies. So it's sort of like you've got your your in groups. And so it's talking about like the moral circle that we talked about a billion years ago. Um, and so you've got these durable relationships that transcend differences um, like differences in geography or um, ideology or identity in some way. And so um, this makes me think of David Wengrow um, and his book that first came out in 2010. And I read it for a class and I like didn't get it because I had terrible politics at the time. Um, and it was <laughs> and like I just didn't know stuff. But his book, What Makes Civilization, also made me like we should have read other parts of it in hindsight. Um so he wrote this book, uh, a second edition came out a couple years ago, but I have for everyone, um, I have in the show notes, uh, something he wrote for Eon, and I'm going to quote that. Aeon. Aeon. Um, I, I'm going to quote that here because I think that um, he he presents a much better um, and actually this this book was sort of like the intellectual prelude to um, the the his book with Dave with the late David Graeber. Yeah, um, which so we just talked so, about with Kyle Jordan. Yeah. And I think I got for Christmas. Um, oh <laughs> I think don't uh, don't tell my mom, but I think I got it for Christmas. That's um, so David Wingrow is um, is a professor of of comparative archaeology. Um, and so he writes for Aeon. Aeon. Quote, when people use the term early civilization, they are mostly referring to Pharaonic Egypt, Inca Peru, Aztec Mexico, Han China, Imperial Rome, ancient Greece, or other ancient societies of a certain scale and monumentality. All of these were deeply stratified societies held together mostly by authoritarian government, violence, and the radical subordination of women. Sacrifice is the shadow lurking behind this concept of civilization, the sacrifice of freedoms, of life itself, for the sake of something always out of reach, an idea of world order, the mandate of heaven, 
blessings from those insatiable gods. There is something wrong here. The word civilization stems from a very different source and ideal. In ancient times, kiwilis meant those qualities of political wisdom and mutual aid that permit societies to organize themselves through voluntary coalition, end quote. Um, I which, like thinking of civilization as something that happens rather than something that yeah. is. And I, right. because, and I think that there is something to be said for the fact that the, the idea that it's something that is and something material is clung to because all of the system, like the dominant systems in our society do not do civilization. And right. in order, and if you, and if you're the ones who define define civilization as like a good thing you want to make sure you're doing the good thing because like sure what would what would capitalism and colonialism do if it looked around and we're like oh no like like what do you like what do you do you're in too deep you're you're a few centuries too deep into it oopsies um but for the sake of this discussion let's return to that work that previous not david wingrove's working definition of civilization um as unsatisfactory as it is. Um, so those civilizations, we got that. Now, what about lost? How do you lose it? What's a, what's a, what's a lose? What's a loss? Hmm? You know what made Anna. me so mad? What? Well, no. Okay. What? More disappointed than mad this time, actually. Okay. But it's just like specifically like talking about the lost Maya city. Yeah. And lost Maya yeah. civilization yeah. specifically. It's like, no, they're not gone. Yeah. And so that's and I think that. Yeah. So we've got. So if you, if we um, want to talk about a lost civilization, I think the, I don't like any of this, but I think the the biggest hallmark for me would be that there are no living descendants or no okay. cultural memory of what that population okay. was and, and how they lived. And so nobody knows where they were or what they were or that they were. Um, and then People we find might know out that they were. But yeah. We, and we I guess find not really lost them. And we find evidence of a place that stopped being inhabited that is sort of greater, that sort of more substantial, more civilized than we I would mean, expect there. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, or not even not even expect, but just a record of a people and a way of life that was previously unknown. If if that's what yeah. was found, then I could say, sure, that's a lost civilization. Like does Hassan Lu count? Because that's the only archaeological example that I could think of where oh, you really? have. Well, I, you know, I didn't think that hard. And that's interesting that that you. Um, because is because, there a descendant? I, there's not really a descendant group. Is there? <laughs> no, I mean like well, culturally. Well, I mean, like, I laugh <laughs> because uh, I laugh because we don't. Archaeological research has done less to identify who the Hasaluians were versus like who destroyed them because it's sort of ancillary to one imperial narrative or the other. Yeah. Um, no shots on people trying to study Hassan Lu in this here year of 2021. No, um, no. Still trying to access like, the stuff. But, but no, I think that, so that's really interesting that you thought of that because I think that a lot of media coverage of a lost civilization or a lost city, like what they're talking about is like excavation. Yeah, like, <laughs> like finding dug a place that was covered I mean, I, by sediment or by yeah, forest like, or by, yeah. 
I guess that something further sure. down in the tell is technically lost because you don't have it at hand anymore. But I thought of <laughs> under two, there. I thought of two examples. Oh, good. Um, that work that work differently um, sure. in terms of of how they got lost and <clears throat> why they aren't lost. Um, okay. And the first one is, um, and I will have um, a little bit of info for each of these in the show notes. The first one is Thera. Um, and the Minoans and, oh, so yeah. like, the, and like Akrotiri. So um, I guess if your whole place explodes, it's a little bit well, lost. There's, so, and this, and I thought of this because of its connection to a lot of um, Atlantis noise. Um, and so that like was, was Santorini, the, the island of Santorini, Fiera, was it, um, was it Atlantis because it was this great civilization that got destroyed? No. Um, it, <laughs> in the episode. Um, um, well, and so the, the argument was because it was, um, because there was the, the explosion, the eruption of Thera is thought to be one of the um, biggest, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the most severe. Yeah. Strongest. I don't know how, how, I don't know how volcanologists talk about this. Big. Um, but it was, it was the, it was the most volcanic, one of the most volcanic things that has ever happened. So sort of, it was, it was huge. Like the caldera blew out and a bunch of the island got destroyed. However, Minoans were on Thera, but they were based. Yeah. That's not where Crete. they're from. Yeah. Uh, so they were based in Crete and they were also um, kind of pan-Mediterranean because they had a lot going on. Yeah, they so bossed this around. Is in, sure. This is in the Bronze Age where everything is like very heavily maritime. Um, the It is thought, it what it has been argued by some folks that the, um, that that, ex- that that explosion, that that eruption um, perhaps precipitated or catalyzed um, or the, the kicked off the yeah the fall of the Minoan civilization, but um, Mycenaean Greece, so Mycenae and, and yep, other cities, I've heard of it. Were um, they were increasing their strength and presence in the Mediterranean? So, and so was it the only factor? No. Did it help? It was probably. I don't know that it helped. I think it might have hurt everyone. Because it like blew a That's hole fair. in the Mediterranean and it, it had, and, and like it had sort of climate implications and long-term weather implications. Right. What I mean so, is that some, some groups may have bounced back better from may have been that able destruction. To, yeah, some groups may have been able to use the, um, the, the hit, uh, that others took to their advantage. Sure. And so, and so like, some groups recovered and other, others didn't. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it wasn't lost. It wasn't a loss. It wasn't lost. No, it was the like people were still was there. Buried. Yeah. Um, not, was, not specifically those people because they died. Oh, no. But, no. But, but sort of the <laughs> civilization of like, yes. And, and also Minoan and Mycenaean cultural, like art, basically art history. Yeah. Like art history shows that uh, stylistic, um, aspects of Minoan and Mycenaean art. No, they eventually blend. The other example that I thought of was in the Amazon and Mm -hmm. that we have only recently as as, as sort of global north archaeologists starting to 
uh, understand that um, the Amazon has been um, has been urbanized. So it's sort of the the idea of like a galactic. It's sort of a um, described as a galactic network where you've just got sort of these these clusters of of communities of settlements of um, modify agriculturally modified patches of forest. Yeah, and turns that, out it expands throughout a huge part of the Amazon. And um, that was, uh, and, and it is it is thought that um, the 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 languages spoke and sort of the, the I don't I'm not super clear on sort of where linguistics and and yeah, ethnic, I don't know. ethnicity overlap in the Americas, but um, um, Arawaki and Taino speakers and people um, that pop and so it was it was it's been thought for a long time that for a very long time this place had been sparsely inhabited. Turns out before nope. before the year before Europeans showed up and the genocide of the Americas occurred, both um, the intentional and sort of the um, incidental, the, the knock on effects of, yeah. of introduced um, like uh, disease and famine and like disruption of um, economic systems. A lot of people died. So yep. like that's the closest I can think of of something that's been lost because most other things that we think of as lost in the Americas there is oral history. Mm-hmm. And it just and it's only lost if you haven't talked to anyone that knows <laughs> about it. Which is a big problem that we keep seeing. In the case of the Amazon, most of those people died. Yeah. And um I think that's the closest we might get. Yeah. None of this is is good. <laughs> but but important to to think about and which was the whole point of this episode to think about the information we have, think about the the way that we characterize people in the past and when you see that characterization, just take a moment to consider it, to consider the connotations that come along with the words that are used, to consider kind of why we call it that, why we think about it the way that we do. Yeah. And also, um, I think I think we should all get excited about the possibilities of what we will learn in the future. I'm always excited about that. That's because, like my whole jam. It's like, because, there's so much I don't know. Oh, God, well, there's so much that, I don't and know. And that should be the attitude that anyone who works in the human sciences should, and any science should should take of just like, there's so much we don't know. How cool is that? That, yeah, it's there's so uh, much we're going to find out. Yeah, it's neat. I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So listeners, I, I hope fun. get. Yeah, I this was great. I had mostly a great time. <laughs> and so, you know, there are parts that were a little more somber. Yeah. It's hard to say that you have a great time during that. But I I think that we did. We did good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just trying to worth, validate myself. Worth worth the wait, I hope, listeners. Yeah, thank you all for um, bearing with us as we took a little hiatus. Please, last, may I have last a crumb week. of graduate admissions? Please, if you're a uh, graduate program, consider accepting me. Can vouch, uh, and in fact have. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write another recommendation letter. So, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in your ears next week with new content. 
all through the month of December. And then we will be taking yeah. our usual January hiatus to let us do a little bit of breathing and holidaying. And oh my gosh, but 2022 is going to be so good. We've got so uh, much great stuff coming. Lit, maybe? Will it be lit? Mm. Maybe there'll be a sure. new word in 2020. Yeah, maybe by then. Um, all right. Well, until then, until then, you can find that new content and all of our old content at thedirtpod.com. You can also find us on whatever podcatcher you listen to. And if you haven't already, take a second, leave us a review. It really helps us out. You can also, 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 also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. Oh, gosh. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. We love you. I also love you. I finally worked up the nerve to say that. Okay. While I was making my tea this morning, I was like, maybe I should tell the listeners I love them. I think I'm ready. Okay. Listeners, Amber loves you. I love you, too. Feels weird. Okay. Amber's going to go process that. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.